You are listening to the Story Embers Podcast, a podcast dedicated to guiding and inspiring Christian storytellers to glorify God with excellent craftsmanship. Welcome to episode 26, an interview with Chris Fabry about the promise of Jesse Woods. Good morning, and welcome to the next episode of the Story Embers podcast. Today, we have a very special guest with us, Chris Fabry, the author of The Promise of Jesse Woods and a bunch of other really great novels that he's written over the course of his career. Your hosts today are Brianna Helvetti, uh, the managing editor of Story Embers, Grace Livingstone, our podcast director, myself, and of course, Chris Fabry, who's here for the end of our 2020 book study on The Promise of Jesse Woods. Over the past couple months, there have been several of you who are a part of the Story Embers community who have been reading through The Promise of Jesse Woods together, discussing it uh, with fellow people on the forum. We just got finished with our article series about uh, The Promise of Jesse Woods. We're here to conclude our virtual book studies with a conversation with Chris Fabry himself to talk about the book, talk about his experience writing it, and uh, and what wisdom he has to share with us about fiction writing uh, as we examine The Promise of Jesse Woods. So welcome aboard the Story Embers podcast, Chris. It is great to be with you. Thanks for having me. I'm honored that uh, some folks have actually dipped in, dipped their toe into the uh, the fictional world that I created. Awesome. Well, it's great to, great to have you on. So, Chris, my my first question, uh, you know, today I wanted to discuss today is, you know, I thought, you know, what better place to start than with the beginning of the actual book creation process? So I'm curious to hear, you know, how you originally came up with the concept for The Promise of Jesse Woods and, and what inspired the book's creation. There were several things that I, I usually have a uh, some mental image that comes to me that I use, like Lewis talked about, you know, the fawn and the lamppost, and that just kind of guided. There was this girl from West Virginia that kept coming back to me that, strangely enough, kind of mirrored some of the young ladies that I knew when I grew up in the holler back in West Virginia and would ride the, the school bus and would see all different types of uh, young people that I grew up with uh, around there in, in a little town called Culloden, West Virginia. And uh, I renamed that Dogwood. And so a lot of my stories happen in that uh, setting. And so the setting is very real to me, the, the burst of colors in the fall. But there is this one girl that kept coming back to me, and I kept wondering, why is she coming back to me? What's going on? And what has happened in her past? And uh, it's a love story, obviously, if you've read it. Um, there is a certain sense of uh, the, the thing that guided my writing was uh, Matt, the main character, wants to rescue Jesse Woods. And this is one of the things that he has seen in his young life, that rescue is a part of him. I even had this happen the other day. I was thinking about uh, when I was a child in this little church in West Virginia, I was probably four or five years old. I couldn't read the hymnal, but <laughs> I would daydream on Sunday nights and I would look at the different uh, lighting fixtures 
above and I would think, what if somebody broke into the church right now? And what if uh, somebody took everybody hostage or all the pastor and all the people there hostage? Who would save them? And I would imagine myself, I think I'd watch the Wild Wild West, which was a, a series that was on that I loved. Uh, I could I could swing from that lamp to that lamp and jump over there and land on the piano and jump in the Baptist, you know, have all of these things that were going on. Uh, I was a fiction writer even as a child. But there was this sense within me of rescue. I I have the power to rescue other people. So there's a real strong thread of that that runs through the story, through the different characters especially with Matt and Jesse, that's kind of the impetus for the whole thing. Hmm. That's really neat. So it sounds like, it sounds like you're, you're drawing a lot here from your, you know, your own experience uh, growing up in, in kind of, you know, Appalachian, Appalachian culture. Um, you know, one of the questions I originally had was you know, how familiar you were with Appalachian culture and how much research you felt like you had to do to depict in the story. But it sounds like you're able to draw from a lot of real life experience there with it. Right. What you know is one of those things that people throw out with any kind of, of uh, writing endeavor. And I, I've lived a lot of this, sure. And I've heard a lot of different stories. I didn't grow up in a pastor's family. But I've known a lot of people who have and some who've had really good experiences and some not so good. And so when I dream or when I uh, come up with ideas, I, I generally have that happen. It's the thing that you can uh, just kind of poke me and I will bleed West Virginia. I have a, another friend who lives in uh, Louisiana, um, and he has written a number of things. He's worked on movie reviews, has written for the Dallas Morning News and worked in Philadelphia at a newspaper and writes for the American Spectator now, Rod Dreher. And about him, they said, Rod, when you write, we love everything that you write, but when you write about home, something goes on. The page comes alive. And I find that when I do, when I do my writing, it is most real about my kin and the people that I grew up with because I've just baked in that culture and I know them so well. doesn't mean that I can't write about other people or where I am now. I live in Arizona now. And I, I find a lot of parallels between the people around me that I've met, especially on the farms and the people that I grew up with. You know, we're all the same in, in a lot of ways. But there's just something about the hills and the hollers of West Virginia and then uh, writing about baseball. You know, the when I grew up as a child, baseball, the Cincinnati Reds was just a, a part. It was like you can talk about those players back there and it's like your mother uh, serving you a slice of apple pie, that homemade apple pie that she's made. It's it just brings everything alive to me. Mm. Well, that's that's great. I could certainly, uh, certainly, when I was reading reading the book, it, it felt like it had that weight in that you know that grit that just comes with depicting a, a place that you know. Even though you know, I did not. I grew up in the the suburbs of, of PA, so you know, a different a different culture. But it, it's reading the book. It yeah, I, it felt very real to me as a writer. I could certainly you know picture things happening in this place that was different from the way that I grew up. I'm going to go ahead and uh, and turn it to uh, to Brianna here for uh, a couple of the questions that she had. Brianna, do you want to jump in with the conversation with some of the questions you had for Chris? Yes. 
as a stylistic editor, I really appreciated the care you put into crafting your prose, all the details, and it was poetic in places, and you had some interesting metaphors. What tips do you have for writers on developing a distinct character voice like this without diving overboard into purple prose? That's a great question. And I, I don't know the answer for me. I can't answer for anybody else, but for me, there is a sense that when I, when I go back through what I've written, I can tell it there's this internal detector. Uh, Hemingway talks about it in kind of a profane way, but there is this detector that like, ah, I'm trying there. You're trying too hard, you know, you're trying too hard there. You're trying to make too many illusions or bring up too many metaphors. Uh, show don't tell is always the the rule of thumb. And people will ask me, you know, but what does that mean? And the best that I can come to it is the, the storyteller getting out of the way of what is going on there on the page so that it comes alive to the reader. Um, my process is I write from page one all the way to page 500 or however long the, the novel is, I don't take time to stop and edit and go through things. I just try to, it's, it's almost like a purge for me. And with Jesse, uh, you know, this is, I'm on my 82nd book now. Many of those are children's books, children's fiction, but a lot of them are, are adult novels. And what I found is that if I can start and, and uh, run through the story and get everything out that I have, then I, with an editor's help, I can go back through and I can see the things, many times reading it out loud to myself. I hear it uh, better than I can see it on the screen or on the page. Reading it back to myself helps me to, no, that doesn't work. No, that is overblown. No, that, you know. Those types of things, when you can hear it, um, it's it helps with my editing process. I have to say, though, that uh, Jesse, I had written a different ending to Jesse than the one that is in the published book. And the editors had several things that they wanted me to do. And that was one of the things, the way that I had ended the book uh, in first iteration, they felt like they needed me to revisit it, which is always hard. It's always, you know, it's like a story that I tell it's set in stone. It's, it's there, you know, you can change uh, a comma or <laughs> uh, uh, help my punctuation, but you know, don't mess with the story. But the, I've always believed that an editor is there to help you, to help you give the best story to the reader. And so in that case, after I went, into my corner and cried a little bit. I came back to it with fresh eyes, read it over again and saw, you know what? I think they're right, especially with the themes that I was going for. They're right. So I, I took another run at the ending of the book and I think it, it turned out better than what I'd done first. Oh, wow. That's very interesting. And I have to say that that moment you mentioned where you went in your corner and cried is very important for the author because it's totally okay to let those emotions out because it can be very hard um, when you're going through edits uh, to know how to navigate them and to be okay with changing the story. Yes. So it's totally okay to take that time. 
it's excruciating because, and people say, don't take it too serious. You know, don't take it personally. Well, that you can't get any personal than spending, uh, you know, eight months or however long it takes you to write this kind of pouring out your heart and, and trying to get at the, the meat, you know, at the nugget of the truth that you're truly really trying to express and to have someone say, well, you know, you didn't end it right. <laughs> That's hard. <laughs> That's very, very true. Because I always tell um, the authors that I work with that, you know, it's okay to be upset the first time that you get an edit back. It's totally okay. Just, just don't react in that moment. Take some time and think about it and calm down and then come back and say, okay, I'm going to do this. Yes. Well, and if you have the mindset that the editor is the, or editors, you know, the, the, the team that's working together, the team is here to give the reader the best possible book. And if that's the goal, um, then, you know, we need to work together. And if you see something that I don't see, please tell me, I want to know that. I worked a lot of years with Jerry Jenkins. Jerry wrote the Left Behind uh, series and, you know, sold millions of copies. And uh, I kind of sidled up to, to Jerry when we both worked at Moody Bible Institute together and he knew that I wanted to write. And he said, if, if you really want to do this, I can help you, but it'll be painful. And I said, Oh, yeah, absolutely. And the first time I gave him a story and he handed it back to me all marked in red felt in a pen, I was horrified because I thought he was just going to tell me that, you know, this is the greatest thing I've ever read, Chris. Why aren't you published already? You know, you're the diamond in the, all that kind of stuff. And what he was doing is showing me, you know, this, this, you need to take this out. The story starts over here on page three, where you've, you know, you've kind of cleared your throat for the first two pages. And when I got past my pride, what I realized was one, he was right. And two, he was willing to take time with me to, you know, look at a story. So there must be something in there that he liked, you know, there's something worthwhile in the all in with all the red. And so that was a very good, from there on, I, I it was a very good uh, primer for me to, to trust someone else with your story, to tr be able to trust an editor to bring out the best in what you're trying to do. It's hard, but once you jump that chasm, uh, I've found that my, my fiction has been better for it. That's awesome. Now, I have another question. I'm going to kind of switch gears here a little bit. What made you decide to have the story alternate between the past and the present, as opposed to just describing the events as they happened? And what advice would you give to writers if they're considering presenting a story in a format similar to that? I find it, it's a difficult thing to do, a difficult to pull off to do the two different time shifts. Uh, I did that with a story called Under a Cloudless Sky, where I've told the story of a uh, an older woman who is coming to grips with her past and, and she's losing a lot of her freedom and she disappears. She's kind of gone grandma. And in the time shift earlier in the 1930s, uh, in a coal camp, you get to see her backstory and what happens. So the parallel timelines, I think if you, you have to have a reason for them, you have to have two compelling stories to pull you through to do that because 
it's it's they're competing with each other. Um, one of the things that I've you know been interested to see reader patterns is if they're not interested in the present day story, they'll just read the past and vice versa. So uh, with Jesse, because of Matt's love for Jesse and what she what he wanted, how he wanted his life and their life to turn out, I felt like that was a really compelling story that was going on there. But equally compelling, why is he the way he is? Why is she the way she is? Why is there this distance between them? Why would she ever fall in love with who she's fallen in love with? Is she really in love? You know, the whole rescue thing. And then you're able to look back at the uh, at the past and see, uh, p- put the pieces together. I love a, a sense of mystery. I have a sense of mystery in everything that I write because I like mysteries. I like to solve things and and put the pieces and the clues together to see if I can figure out where the, the author is going with this. So there is a sense of mystery in all of those stories, but as, especially in Jesse, you know, why is, why didn't it work out? You know, what happened back there with Daisy Grace and with, with Jesse? So I found that very uh, compelling to bring me back to the page every day, bring me back to the screen. And the the answer to what would I tell people who are trying to work on that, treat this as two separate stories, as uh, the the timeline that, you know, is either present day or or is later in time and earlier in time. Have those mapped out as much as you can and then allow both timelines to inform the other, meaning uh, there may be something that I write one day and I think it is in the, is in the present. And I think, well, wait a minute. Why, why is that there? Why did I just put that down there? That's interesting. What is that? And you can solve the mystery of that in the former timeline so that even though you map things out, you allow yourself to uh, still dream and ideate if you are a plotter. And if you're a pantser, you know, it's uh, just writing by the seat of your pants, then it, it's going to come organically to you. But even if you are a uh, plotter all the way through, having this, having the openness to discovery in your story in both timelines will inform the other. I hope that makes sense. Oh, it does. It definitely does. Now, on that topic, how long did it take you to write The Promise of Jesse Woods? And what was your process like? Are you a plotter or a pantser or a combination of both? I'm a combination. I always want to know where I'm going to uh, wind up. And if I know where I'm going to wind up, then I know where I'm going to start pretty much. Because in your end is in your beginning and in your beginning is in your end. And so it's very important for me to know what that you know, that starting place is. And I, I think, I believe from the beginning of uh, the first word to the end was probably about six months. Uh, most of my books take about six months and then comes the editing. So when the editor came back to me and said, we don't like the, uh, the ending of this, we want you to rethink that, see if, see if you agree with us. It probably took another two months after that to really 
bore down on it and figure out where I wanted it to go. Because if you change one thing, it changes another and it changes another. And so you really have to go back and you, you look at the whole thing. Uh, it'll change your themes a little bit as well. So it probably was from the time I started to the time I finished, the writing process was about uh, six to eight months. Now, you, you have to know, though, that that story was running around my soul for a few years before that in different iterations. My first idea was a story about a man who kidnaps his father and takes him to a baseball game to learn who his father really is. And the longer that I went with that and, and different uh, ideas about it, of the Vietnam era that they're going through with Dickie Dara Lee, Hancock and others. Some of those stories were, you know, I was going to go that direction with be, being the main character. And so this was not just a, oh, here's what I'm going to do. And here's what I've here, pay me the, the advance for this. And then I go write it for eight months. It was a very long process of thinking and stewing on the story. Um, so I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't throw that in there. Well, I've loved learning all these extra details about the story because I really appreciated how intricately it was tied together and how well everything worked. And I'm almost out of questions. So Josiah, if you wanted to ask a few more, you could go ahead. Yeah. Um, you know, if I can actually step a, a couple couple steps back in the conversation, you, there's one of the things you said that, you know, one of the things you, you mentioned when we were talking, when you, you and Brianna were talking about the, the multiple, multiple plot lines in the past and the present and try and keep them balanced is, you know, you, you mentioned the fact that, you know, one of the challenges that can come with multiple plot lines is when the reader is only invested or, or mainly invested in just one of the plot lines where they're just reading it for the present day or the past or whichever is the case. And, you know, on that, on that train of thought, I, I was curious if you ever ran into that problem as you were writing The Promise of Jesse Woods and had to make some adjustments to make them both equally engaging and what advice you might have for other authors who are finding that one of their plot lines is a lot more interesting than the other. I think where I get off track with what you're talking about is when I, because I'm more of a pantser, you know, I have this thing plotted out, I know where I'm going to go, but I'll find something that's really interesting, a little rabbit trail, and I'll go down that trail for a while. And then I'll realize, well, oh, wait a minute, I don't, I don't know how well this fits in with the, the storyline, but I know that there is a uh, th there's a connection here and I don't want to be too hard or judgmental on myself for going there. Cause there may be gold down that trail. You know, I don't know when I sit down to write every day, if this is going to be gold or if this is going to be something that I will edit later on. But as far as the, the, the plot lines that are, that are engaging, if I feel engaged when I come to the page every day, then I think the reader will be engaged. If I am yawning and thinking, when is this going to be over? You know, then, then that's going to leak through to the reader. They could tell, <laughs> you could tell when somebody is really energized by what they're writing about. If I'm excited about it, then the reader hopefully will, will catch, catch that. Um, one of the things that I, and, and, and here's another uh, aspect of rescue in this. One of the things that I didn't tell you when I was a child, uh, I had two older brothers. And uh, one was eight years older, one was 10 years older. So by the time that I 
came into the age uh, that we're writing about. My oldest brother was gone. You know, he went into military and uh, studied at West Point and then had a military career. My brother that was eight years older than me was closer. And so he had friends that he would do things with, ride bikes with, play football, baseball. And I was always the tag along kid. I was always the one that, that just got to go along with him that he didn't want me there. And there was a day when, when, uh, my brother Dave and his friend Bud were riding bikes and I took off and followed them and they didn't want me there. That, that's, that's how I remember it. And we passed, uh, Vessie Soward's farm and there was a horse that was standing on the, the berm of the road, uh, it's a dirt road. And there was a, a big kind of a little, a bank going up. And then the horse was at the fence looking down at us and Bud and Dave kept on riding. And I kind of paused and lingered and stopped and thought there's something weird about that horse up there. And that's, that's really the first visual of rescue thing that you find in the book. And I used that real thing that happened. The horse had had barbed wire wrapped around its leg, its front uh, right leg, as I recall. And it was, the barbed wire was in, it was bleeding. It was, it was a horrific looking injury. And so I, I called them back and they came back and my brother and Bud went back to get wire cutters so that they could release the horse they cut the wires, uh, were able to get it off of there. By then, the uh, the owner came by and said, uh, you saved our horse, my horse's life. The horse lived, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and so I used that as this, really the starting point of the, of the novel and the, the three main characters happens by seeing this very scene that I experienced as a child. And I, I felt that that was because everybody, you know, who doesn't want to, uh, to save the life of someone or some animal, uh, I thought that was very engaging and then kind of filtered through the rest of the book when you see what happens fictionally with, with the, the horse in that story. Uh, not sure that answers your question fully, but uh, there you go. That's quite helpful just to hear about, you know, how you've, you, you know, how you approach the writing process and, you know, the importance of being engaged, you know, as yourself as a writer, because if you're not, you know, interested in what you write, it's going to be a tough sell for tough sell for readers as well. Another thing I wanted to, to talk about that very theme of rescue in that scene when you when you're seen on the bank with the horse um, in the book. I love that scene for a number of reasons. You get to see with with the main theme of the book just how different all the characters are and how they respond to you know, respond to this horse in need of rescue. You know, it gives you a clear characterization of where how many of them are are living with regards to the theme. One of the things that I found you know, most intriguing about, you know, theme of rescue you know, that comes up in The Promise of Jesse Woods, you know, is, of course, the fact that for our protagonist, Matt, there is a problem with his desire to rescue, not realizing, you know, first that, you know, he himself, you know, is in need of rescue, not fully realizing that there can be some element of pride, perhaps, 
know, in his desire to rescue and the way he he goes about doing it. You know, I first read the book a, a couple years ago, and that theme has been one of the main things that's that stuck with me, in part because it's a really good theme and message that we're, we're forced to grapple with as readers, but also in part because it, it feels quite different to me from you know, many of the other books I read. You know, I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm a big fantasy sci-fi guy. So normally, who are going to be the heroes in those stories? Well, it's those people who are going out and and rescuing others. You know, those are generally the heroes. You know, their their desire to rescue is a good thing. Where this book is kind of exploring. Well, it's not that it's bad to rescue someone, of course, but can there be can there be flawed motives that are a part of it? So to move to you know my actual actual question here. One of the things I was curious in hearing from you is how you you you, you talked about how you know as a boy grew up with you know it, it sounded like a similar desire here to Matt had, but I was curious what led you kind of to this specific you know idea and, and theme you want to explore about pride that can sometimes come in with the rescue and the ways in which you know a strong desire to kind of come in on this white horse and save people what inspired you to come up with this story kind of examining some of the pitfalls that can come with that kind of an approach i think it's because of the the theological construct that i i find myself in so so often and that is i want to rescue other people and I'm a very, very bad savior. <laughs> I, I, I'm not up to the task. There's only one who can do that. And it's a very hard lesson to learn. You know, my wife and I have nine children. And anytime you have nine children, uh, the youngest now is 18. So they're, they're mostly young adults. And so when they've been in uh, dire straits in school, the rescue in me wants to do it for them or wants them help them get a good grade or they make a, a bad life decision here or there. I want to rescue to keep them from pain, to shield their heart from pain that I know is going to come that I have experienced already. You know, honey, you know, you don't want that to happen. So I want to rescue. And a lot of times, uh, what I have found is that in my life, the pain has been a better teacher than somebody on the outside helping me make a better decision. There's a certain process that you have to go through in order to make the decision your own, you know, to own your own life. And the pain can help in that. Um, as a matter of fact, the, the dedication for the book is in memory of Kristen Kent and Dontrell Davis. When I went to study at Moody Bible Institute in, in Chicago in the 1980s, there were two people that affected me. One was Kristen Kent, who was a student at Moody, and she was going to work in the inner city. She had a job close to the Institute, and uh, it was at a, a health club, and she was walking home from the health club one night, and she was brutally murdered. And so her, the specter of her life has hung over me since then. And, and there's part of me that, oh, I wish I'd have been there. I would rescue her. Dontrell Davis lived in Cabrini Green, which was just a stone's throw away from the apartment where uh, near, nearby there in downtown Chicago. And his mom was taking him to school one day, uh, holding his hand. And there was a gunfire, a drug deal went bad, whatever. The bullet hit Dontrell and he died. And 
I wanted to save everybody in Cabrini Green. There were people that I worked with who had uh, ministry with those in Cabrini Green. It was like, I, w- I want to go there. I want to want to want to save the people who were in dire straits. And I want to save Kristen Kent from all of you know the things that happened to her. When I was in the first grade, I have, you know, I can remember all the way back to the, this whole thing about being the savior, about being the rescuer has been very hard for me to spike in my life. And it's, you know, almost a superhuman thing that you have to do to, to tell yourself, this is not your job. There are things that you could do. There are wonderful things you could do in the world and to help people. That's one of the reasons why Matt is in this kind of uh, social justice thing that he's doing. What he cannot do himself is change the world. And, and you and the other part of this is you see the disaster in his life when somebody tries to rescue him from a bad road or a, a love that he's going down. It's a, it's a full orbed thing, especially in the Christian community that I think we have a really hard time uh, capturing to allow God to be the one who is the rescuer. I can be a part of the process, but I cannot be the capital R rescuer. Wow. That's a, uh... Yeah, as you're as you're talking about you know the the people you dedicated the book to, it's a very hard lesson to learn in, in both of those cases and and tragic what happened to to those people that you knew. How many of your stories would you say come from the hard lessons that you feel like you've had to learn in your own walk as a Christian? I think they all do, or they leak in there. And then a couple of years later, I look back and say, oh, I I wrote that for me. (laughs) You know, uh, everything, if you write what you know, everything will leak out kind of onto the page. I just finished a novel and turned it in as we're uh, recording this. And it took place in my teenage years when I got my very first job. My very first job was at a radio station. And this little country and Western station, 5,000 watts out in the middle of nowhere. And I knew at some point in my life, I would go back and I would revisit the quirky people in this uh, radio station and the, the weird dysfunctional family that it was, in a sense. This was the kind of station where uh, it was the only people who worked there were people who were either just starting out or who had fallen from some greater heights, and this was the only place that would hire them. <laughs> so there's a there's a certain sense of the bottom of the barrel. And I just found that such a rich thing to want to write about because I have experienced it myself. And the lessons that I learned, there are many people who uh, start out in radio or in TV news or whatever, and, and success is moving up, moving to the next thing, moving, moving to a bigger market. You're in a market 150, you want to break 100, you want to break 75, break 50, you know, keep going up. The money gets better, the exposure is better. And what I discovered was there were so many people that I met that, who kind of filtered through there who were looking to do that, looking to move up. But even the people that I met who had moved up, weren't satisfied. They were, it it didn't matter if they had made it to Chicago, New York was bigger or LA was bigger. When you, when you live through some of those things, when you observe some things out there and then you observe them in yourself, it makes you really want to write about that, write truly about it. 
uh, and write it. If you're going to write from a Christian perspective, write it authentically. Uh, it's it's one thing to write a tract. Uh, it's another thing to write fiction where you're writing about real people who make mistakes in their lives and who mess up. That's one of the things I love about the Gospels is it doesn't sugarcoat anything. You know, there's guys that are following Jesus are just making the one mistake after another, and they left it in King David. They left in, you know, the, the, the mistakes that he made. That's because God loves to use real people who've made real mistakes to pour out his grace in their life so that they draw closer to him in a relationship, not based on merit, but based on his love, his grace. Uh, so learn a lot about that just about every day. Mm. Well, thank you. That's that's really good because that is ultimately, you know, what's you know what our you know, our calling is to do as as Christian storytellers is to depict God's world and you know in his in the people He's made honestly and authentically. Those were the final questions that I had. Um, Brianna, are, are there any other questions that you had that you wanted to wanted to ask Chris before we wrap up here? Yes, I just had one last question. One aspect of your book that surprised me was how you ended up portraying the Moss Man as real instead of a figment of the character's imaginations. How would you recommend that writers of genres such as contemporary and historical fiction add a mythical element to their stories without damaging the reader's suspension of disbelief or turning the work into speculative fiction? Great question. Well, I have to I have to talk about the Mothman because that was a part of my growing up. I mentioned I had two older brothers, and they were very much into model rocketry. My oldest brother, who went in the military, wanted to be an astronaut. The other brother was a chemist. So there were very you know here I was writing songs and and singing and writing stories and that kind of thing as a child, and they were both in in chemical engineering and and uh, in military. So they loved to talk about unidentified flying objects and they would get these magazines and, and show them to me. See, this is the, the saucer that, you know, somebody took a picture of and Mothman was a big part of that. And they would talk about Mothman and there was the, the silver bridge that collapsed in Ohio and West Virginia and the people who died there. So there are these mythical things. There are these huge things that are going on in my little slice of the world that seemed very real to me, it made total sense that there could be a Mothman out there. And I use that because it was just so big for me when I was a kid. I have to, I have to say that I don't necessarily paint the Mothman as reality for, uh, for Matt but there is this fear and this of uh, the stories seem so real to him that were related to him that when he hears these things, immediately he feels like there is, and there's probably a, a different uh, interpretation or <laughs> a different explanation for the red eyes and the wing flapping that he can hear. Cause I experienced that as a kid on the farm, growing up on the farm, you'd, you'd hear something and you'd think it's one thing, and then later on, you'd come to find out, oh, it wasn't what I thought it was. It was something else. But there is the, um, the sense that if, if a young person or a child really believes something is there, 
to be able to run with that and show the, the logical conclusion. And I, that's why I use that device of the Mothman with Matt, because Matt's coming from the outside in. He's coming from a more populous area to this, you know, sparsely populated uh, agrarian. He's a, farmers and it's, it's a little poverty stricken there too. So he's an outsider who comes in and he hears these two friends that kind of grab onto him. He hears them tell this story and he doesn't want to believe this, but the more they talk about it, the more he has to say, wow, there must be something going on here. Uh, I don't know how much you can use that, that mythical in your writing. One thing that I would say is it's got to feel real to the characters that are experiencing it. Well, I have to say that when I read that part, it definitely felt real to me. So you succeeded at that. <laughs> now, I have actually one more question that I thought of as I was listening to you just now. Um, you've mentioned a couple times that you used to write fiction even as a child. What was the first story you ever wrote, if you can remember what it was? That's Well, I, the first thing that I ever wrote, I have in my office. My mother saved it. I had a, uh, we had, uh, grew up on a farm. We had barn cats, you know, cats that lived outside that never came inside. And in the summer, these cats would crawl under uh, anything that had shade uh, and crawled under a car once. And my brother backed up. Usually when you start the car, the cats scatter. Well, this one didn't, unfortunately. And uh, I still bear the scars of, of what happened to that cat that day. So we buried this cat uh, near the barn and I put a little cross up there. I think I was probably about five years old. I put a little cross up there. And I wrote, here lies a cat, a faithful cat. And my mother went and grabbed that and put it in her Bible. And just in the last uh, few years, she sent that to me. So I keep that. That is the very first thing that I ever wrote that, uh, that stuck. Uh, and it was, it was the epitaph for my cat. So I would write these stories uh, and take them to school. And I can remember in uh, junior high, instead of middle school, it was junior high. And I would read poetry. I would read things that I had written. I wrote a song called Maggie the Cow that was just a great big hit. Uh, now, this is the story of Maggie the Cow who lived in the days of yore. Old Farmer Bob would feed her hay and sell her in the store. And she lived her life, got cut by a knife after the gun did sound. And they cut her neat to get to the meat and sold her by the pound. So that, that <laughs> my, dad, my uh, father's name is Robert. So Bob, Farmer Bob. And it's the story of a cow. Now, I wasn't against, uh, you know, insensitivity to farm animals at all. It just seemed like I crawled into the hooves of <laughs> the cow and, and I could do that. I could make up these songs. I could make up these stories. And I kind of came alive when I did that as a child. But I didn't get a, a whole lot of uh, encouragement along those lines. And it wasn't until I... I had a, a professor at the uh, local university, uh, grade one of my uh, performances in a forensics competition. You had to write some stuff. And he wrote in red felt, again, red felt pen. He wrote, hey, comma, can write, exclamation point. And that was the first time I ever had anybody, even with English teachers and others that were seeing what I did. That's the first time that I ever had anybody really validate 
what I had felt like as a child. Uh, and I believed him. I, I believed what Boz said to me. And later on, he became my journalism professor uh, and somebody who really, I felt like, uh, catapulted me or, or pushed me forward. At the time, it was in journalism and it wasn't in fiction writing or creative writing. Uh, but this, the two are the same thing as far as I'm concerned. Journalism, a great thing to go into in order to learn how to write well. And then you just uh, take that and run with it in some other discipline. So um, it was very early on that I had this desire to write, but it wasn't until I was late in my teen years that I gained the permission to write. And then I put it away again. And it wasn't until probably in my 30s that I thought, you know, I, I want to do this. I want to go back to this again. And I subscribed to Writer's Digest magazine and I began to read some of Writer's Digest books and books on writing and, and voraciously read fiction and, and nonfiction. And then I met Jerry Jenkins and Jerry was the one to also come alongside and not only propel me, but also show me what good writing is and isn't. Oh, I, I really love hearing people's origin stories like that. And it's interesting in your case, because you could say it all started with a cat. <laughs> yeah. And isn't it interesting that the the Jesse story starts with a horse in trouble and my writing career started with a cat, you know, who had ex expired. Uh, yeah. That's interesting. The the place that animals play in, in a fiction writer's life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because one of the first stories that I ever wrote was about a cat as well. It, it fell off the roof, but it didn't die. So I don't have a cat story, but my first story was a story about a, a fish who ended up dying at the end of it. So I've got the animal and the death part in there, at least. <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah. Well, Chris, it's been uh, it's been really great to get the chance to have you on the podcast today to talk some about the promise of Jesse Wood, about your process writing it, about the lessons that you've learned, not only in the course of writing this book, but also over the course of your, your whole career. And we've been, you know, it's it's been great to get the chance to dialogue with you about it. Before we head off, you know, if there are any readers who are listening to this podcast and, you know, want to, want to find out more about you and the different things you've write, where can they best go to learn more about you and your writing? It's very simple. ChrisFabry.com. F-A-B is in fabulous. F-A-B-R-Y. ChrisFabry.com has links and other things. I've got a writing website called Hey, You Can Write uh, that, that deals with what I just talked about, the, the encouragement that I received from somebody who was a little further down the road. But just go to ChrisFabry.com and you can see more about the things that I've done. Awesome. Well, thank you again for, for coming on, Chris. It was great to have you on today and uh, great to wrap up our books day with The Promise of Jesse Woods with this interview. So thanks again for coming on. It's been my honor. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this special episode of the Story Embers podcast. Be sure to check out our article series on The Promise of Jesse Woods and what storytellers can learn from it at storyembers.org slash blog. And again, you can learn more about Chris and his work at chrisfabry.com. That's F-A-B-R-Y. Shout out to Taylor Clogston and Michael Stanton for their support on our Patreon. Want to help us better inspire Christian storytellers? Visit storyembers.org slash Patreon to learn more about how you can support the Story Embers community. Finally, be sure to tune in next time for another episode of the Story Embers podcast. <laughs>